what I'd like to reflect on this evening is around dimensions of desire. 2,600 years ago, the Buddha, as a young man, sat underneath the Bodhi tree and embarked upon what he later came to call a noble quest or a noble search. I always think it's very important not to, uh, to be careful not to overly idealize or romanticize um, the Buddhist search. But certainly his journey was not a journey that was particularly, particularly unique to him. But we do see if we reflect back upon spiritual traditions in every kind of discipline, We see through time countless women, countless men, young and old, embarking upon a very similar search in all cultures, in cloisters, on mountainsides, in the midst of families and communities, a a search to understand or a quest to understand what it means to live an authentic life guided by inner authority and insight, embodied, a life embodied in dignity and compassion and intentionality. And we can be pretty confident right now as we sit here that there are women in Burmese jungles, on Himalayan mountainsides, around the world, doing just what we're doing right now. Learning to be still, learning to listen inwardly. A young woman in 14th century India, she, she wrote, she said, to learn the scriptures is easy, to live them hard. The search for the real is no simple matter. Deep in my looking, the last words vanished. Joyous and silence, silent, the waking that met me there is. Now, the Buddhist search, I think like all noble searches, began not with rejection, but began with insight. Because certainly Siddhartha saw in his own experience that ultimate security and peace and freedom was actually not going to be found in the world of conditions. But he also saw that aversion and resistance was not a life of dignity or freedom. And prior to his own awakening, the Buddha described his mind as a mind that was disquieted as unreliable, where just too many things in the world and too many things in his own mind were acting as gatekeepers of his happiness. And he saw for himself how often, he described how often he felt just swept along upon life waves of habit and impulse and reactivity. 
And he also saw for himself that as long as he lived locked in a belief in insufficiency of lack, then he was equally going to be locked into an agitated life with a diminished sense of possibility, an undignified life in many ways. And these were the insights that brought Siddhartha to the Bodhi tree. And for many of us, I think it's very, very similar insights that bring us to a cushion. And when, when the Buddha described this path as a noble search, he described the seeking for the unborn, the supreme security from bondage, the search for the freedom from sorrow and struggle, the search for sublime peace. I, I mentioned this on the first night, but I think when we hear the word noble or a noble search, we, we might just struggle just a wee bit to apply it to what we're doing here or what we're experiencing here as we sit around in our various attires. <laughs> looking forward to lunch, (laughs) lost in a fantasy, or just doing our best to find a breath or two. Um, The word noble may feel a little bit overstated or a little bit dramatic. And yet, by all accounts, Siddhartha did not sit under the Bodhi tree sending sublime thoughts of boundless love around the world. By all accounts, he sat, just like we do, with fantasy and aversion and dullness and doubt and uncertainty. But he sat with them and looked them in the eye and came to know that they were not his true home. Not that they didn't arise, but there was something about a refusal to participate in their dance. Now, this word noble, it's actually a better word, is ennobling, is actually really a much used word in this teaching and path. And I think rather than kind of tuning it out or dismissing it or feeling unworthy of it, I I think this word ennobling can actually help us to reframe our own path and practice and a lot of ways to bring our path and our practice into a kind of focus that we can respect and relate to. When we go underneath all our various struggles and strategies and times of confusion, then probably we would acknowledge our own longing to know what it means to to live a life where there is a, a natural dignity and poise. A life where we feel that our words and our acts can genuinely spring from love and from compassion. To live a life where we genuinely feel inwardly a, a a quality of fearlessness and courage. And when we look perhaps more 
more simply and more deeply within ourselves. Most of us would acknowledge our longing to find in ourselves the, the roots and the source of unshakable peace and freedom. Sometimes we can be too modest about acknowledging these longings. In many ways, our own longings, I think, truly need to be brought into the forefront of our consciousness. I think we often do long to know what it means to be our own gatekeeper, a gatekeeper of our own happiness and freedom, and how to live in, in harmony, free of conflict with, within this world, with courage, the courage and the fearlessness that could allow us to meet this ocean of pain and sorrow and conflict in this world with wise action and grace. When the Buddha spoke about the fruition of his path, he didn't describe that fruition, the flowering of his own path, as a kind of mystical entry into some transcendent realm only available to an elite few with a special visa. (laughs) But as the Buddha put it, as I am, so are you. As you are, so am I. Truly recognize the universality of the human story and the human heart. And truly recognize the potentiality of every human heart to know exactly the same freedom that he discovered. But when the Buddha described this freedom, he, he, he simply talked about it as coming to know things the way that they actually are. Just coming to see things as they actually are. The way that all phenomena, all experience is born of conditions, is changing, is empty of independent self-existence. And the Buddha said it sounds in a way so simple. He says, in seeing this, actually it came to know the end of struggle and anguish. But the Buddha also talked about awakening to this sense of sufficiency that saw the end of all lack, of all belief in insufficiency, and described this as the most radical change of heart and the most radical change of mind. And when he talked about this, you know, again, he talked about it really in this very simple terms, in terms in the four ennobling truths that Narayan spoke about on the first evening of this retreat. The acknowledgement that there, there is struggle, there is sorrow, there is disquiet in this life. It's not wrong. It is just the way things are. It is true for all of us. That there is an origin to struggle and there is an end, a possibility of an end of struggle. And there is a path to that end. And, and what the Buddha presented was to live our lives in the light of that understand, those understandings, to live our lives in the light of those realities, is to discover an inner nobility and the capacity to live a noble life. He talked about this as an invitation to us all to understand the same 
realities. The same simple truths. And in that understanding to radically change the nature of our own hearts and often indeed to radically change the nature of our lives. Now these four ennobling truths were not statements of belief, they're not statements of ideology to somehow be adopted or subscribed to. Instead, they were invitations to response. They were actually calls to action. So Buddha said the suffering is to be understood. Its causes are to be investigated and let go of. The end of suffering is something to realize. And the path is something to be cultivated and embodied. And answering that call, as the Buddha put it, and as the Buddha discovered, will bring about a natural authenticity and inner authority and an unhesitating compassion in the life we live in and amidst. Now these understandings that the Buddha talked about, actually, they actually weren't really meant to console us, you know, that everything's really all right. In, in many ways, this path, although we don't include this in our advertising, this path is actually meant to disturb us. It's actually meant to disturb us. It's actually meant to encourage us to question. It's encouraged us to, to look more deeply, to, to not accept things as beliefs, to, to not accept our own beliefs as truths. In fact, to be willing to be disturbed and challenged. Because it is often through that disturbance, not in a negative way, but I don't mean in any sense, but that disturbance is often the, the invitation to change the shape of our own minds and hearts. This evening I want to primarily look at the second ennobling truth, the causes of struggle and sorrow. But I also want to look more widely first at, at these dimensions of desire, in many ways the very paradox of desire. I'd also like to look at the way that Craving, one aspect of desire, is a servant of the belief in insufficiency. And the way that craving, rather than calming or easing the belief in insufficiency, instead only strengthens it. Now, I think sometimes we, we hear, you know, when we hear the word desire used in this tradition and sometimes other traditions too, it's, we've often hear a kind of blanket condemnation of desire, of any form of longing. In, instead, it, it's actually almost become a sort of mantra to, forgive me for saying so, but just be with what is. Well, I think there's a lot more to this path than being with what is. It's certainly very important to learn to be with what is, but it's only one sliver of this path. So I want to, I, want, I think there's a misunderstanding in, in condemning desire. And I want to un, un, unpack that a little bit and look at some of the dimensions of desire that actually help us in this path. 
I mean, first, there is a dimension of desire, which is just the kind of desires that help us to navigate our way through life. You know, if you see on your, a tick on your hand, it's a pretty useful desire to take it off. You know? <laughs> if, if you, you know, it's a desire to be not hurt. If your body is sending messages of hunger and thirst, you know, simply a very practical desire to respond. If it's pouring with rain, you know, you take out your umbrella, you don't have all this kind of big story about it, you know, is this wrong thing to do, you know, is this crazy, you know, you just put up your umbrella, you know. It's, it's part of the desire to protect the well-being of the body, the desire to protect the well-being of the heart. If you see a child about to fall off a cliff, there's a natural desire to reach out and help them. These are the very momentary, simply practical desires that arise and pass, that are part of the fabric of caring for the body. But here is the real key. They can be answered. They leave no residue in the mind. You know, after you've put up your umbrella, you don't spend the next hour thinking about, you know, was that the right thing to do? I shouldn't have done that. You know, and a real yogi would have just stuck it out. You know, it's, they have an end. They can be answered. They arise, they pass, they leave no residue in the mind. Now, there's another realm of desire, which in Pali is, is referred to as chanda, and it's actually really often translated as kusala chanda, or noble, noble desire, wholesome desires. The longings that, again, can be translated into action, and also a realm of desire that can be answered. There are longings that bring us here, desires that bring us here. Without desire, none of us would be here. The longings, the desires to know a greater kindness or spaciousness or compassion, the desire to know an authenticity, the desire to be free from pain. Now, these are wholesome and noble desires, longings, actually, that have been part of every great social, cultural, spiritual revolution that has ever happened in our world. You know, if Nelson Mandela had stuck it out and said, you know, it's just the way things are. <laughs> Don't think much is going to move there, is it? You know, if Aung San Suu Kyi says, well, it's okay, you know, it's fine, you know, just, you know, go ahead, you know, just oppress the country, you know, we're just hang out here. Nothing would have changed, is it? If you look at any great revolution in our times that has really served to end injustice, injustice, wholesome desire has been part of it. These are noble desires. Even for us to sit here together, this is, this is the culmination, the fruition of, you know, our, our the foremothers before us, you know, who, who have actually sat, longed for freedom. You know, the, the women who've made, given us a long lineage of women's awakening. 
even today in, in Buddhist culture, one of the biggest transformations, and certainly in Theravadan Buddhism, in the last hundreds, several hundreds of years, is actually the reestablishing of the bhikkhuni order. And this, this is born of wholesome longings, not about being just with things as they are. The longings for honor, the longings for respect, to give voice to what is true, these are the longings that ennoble our lives, and they are desires to be honored and respected because in many ways they give shape and direction to our path. They are the longings that take us out of the palace, our own palaces of familiarity and habit and illusion, And they are the longings that help us to stop and really question what it is that we are dedicated to, what it is that we most deeply value. I think without these longings, and in many ways, without these longings being clearly articulated and translated into intention and embodied, it's just so easy in our lives, isn't it, to just become kind of lost in forgetfulness just swept along day to day in the tide of doing, hoping, wishing, obsessively, arranging our world as much as possible to protect ourselves from what we dislike and fear, lost in habit. And then I think many times in our life, every now and again, something comes along that reminds us really that the only certainty in this life is that we will all die. And in many ways, our longings remind us to value the manner of our living above all else. And these longings, these kusala desires, are here to remind us about what is possible for us. And in a way, you know, this is actually really the promise of this teaching that the seeds of great compassion, that the seeds of great wakefulness lie within each of our hearts and await our cultivation and our tending of those seeds. That the, the seeds of profound freedom and dignity and poise live within each of our hearts. These longings, these very kusala, noble longings, also needed to be translated into something more substantial, than just hopes or idealized thinking, but into a path. And it's that translation into a path that really ennobles our hearts and lives. In many ways, these noble desires actually are the desires that lead to the end of desire. They are really the desires that can be answered. In the Dhammapada, one of the much-loved early texts in this tradition, There's this wonderful saying that says, all that we are now is a result of all that we were. And that all that we will be tomorrow, or even in the next moment, will be the result of all that we are now. What this teaching is really pointing to is that every moment in our life is a potential turning point. And the very work of mindfulness is to create 
moments of psychological and emotional opportunity to learn to slow things down, to be able to pause enough amidst the momentum of our psychological habits that we have the pause that allows us to walk a different pathway in that moment rather than the pathway of the habitual. That statement is really an invitation to look where we are making our home moment to moment in busyness or in calmness, in anxiety or in simplicity, in aversion or in kindness. The ending of this path, the fruition of this path, the ending of suffering doesn't actually lie in some impossible, unattainable breakthrough moment. There's something much more immediate about this teaching, about bringing about the end of struggle and suffering that we remind ourselves again and again of the possibility of liberating the moment. Personally, you know, I continue to be, after all these years, astonished and truly awed, actually, by the changes and the transformations that people can go through in the very, very short time of a retreat. In just days, really, to be able to begin to move from contractedness to spaciousness, from agitation to a greater sense of ease, from confusion to a greater sense of being present. And it's not as if on coming in a retreat, you know, you necessarily find the answer to every single life dilemma or solve every issue that besets you or you know, every difficulty or every disappointment. But somehow our hearts are changed by remembering that we can take care of the quality of this moment, take care of our heart in this moment. That sense of immediacy, I think, is so important. To, you know, and we've been referring to this already in the talks during this retreat. Look at where we're making our home. Nothing, none of this is preordained or pre, predetermined. It's like the, the few lines in that poem by Naomi Wolf when she says, you know, when someone invites you to a party, remember what parties are like before answering. <laughs> and walk around like a leaf, knowing you could tumble any second, then decide to do with, what to do with your time. Also, what to do with your attention. I mean, how many parties have you been invited to today? You know, the fantasy party. You know, the self-blame party. You know, the self-mortification party. You know, the planning Christmas party. You know, how many parties have you been invited to today? And how easy it is, isn't it, isn't it, to pick up the invitations, actually, just out of habit. They don't even serve us well anymore. It's almost like this feeling of, ah, but maybe you don't have to attend every party. You know? Maybe there's a possibility, just like the Buddha did, of looking it in the eye, nodding, thanking, but no thanks. 
Another dimension of desire is what in Pali is called samvega. It translates as a kind of spiritual urgency. I also don't think that this is a quality or dimension of desire that's particularly a stranger to us. In those moments when you're faced with some terrible image of injustice or the sight of a picture of a child dying needlessly of hunger or disease and really see, and really see, you feel your heart disturbed. You feel that trembling of the heart. When a person that you love and care for becomes gravely ill, I think unhesitatingly at the forefront of our mind is the wish to reach out, to help, to heal, to be wholeheartedly present. When our own world may, may crumble, and our own, our own worlds will certainly crumble at times, through illness or loss or even through a breakdown of trust, those are not moments when we tend to get lost in fantasy. Those are the moments actually when we feel this sense of samvega, this, this sense of spiritual urgency when we know how important it is to, to find the courage to be upright, to, to find refuge within ourselves. Samvega, this quality of spiritual urgency, is not something about haste or intensity. It's something about sincerity and commitment and compassion. Because we all know how easy it is to be forgetful and to think that tomorrow is surely a better day to be awake. It's a small poem by a nun. She says, no past, no future. Open mind, open heart. Complete attention, no reservations. The Buddha put it when he was talking about his, his Bodhi tree evening. He said he sat there with the determination to sit until his blood ran cold, if that was what was required to be awake. Samvega, the spiritual urgency, too, is a desire that can be answered. We can open, we can serve, we can be generous, we can embody compassion. It's a great ally and a great friend on our path. Now I just want to little, look a little bit at the realm of desire that has no answer. We've done the good news, now we move into the bad news. <laughs> look at the realm of desire that cannot be quenched, that has no answer. In Pali, the word is tanha. And it actually does translate as unquenchable thirst. Rather than ending suffering, it is a dimension of desire that brings more suffering. Tanha, this craving, craving, this element of desire, is a servant of the belief in insufficiency and it digs the pit of insufficiency a little bit deeper each time it's pursued. This is the desire that we're really asked to question if we wish to be free from suffering because this is the dimension of desire that binds us to suffering. 
Rumi, he once wrote, he says, who makes these changes? I shoot an arrow right, it lands left. I ride after a deer and find myself chased by a hog. <laughs> I plot to get what I want and end up in prison. I dig pits to trap others and fall in myself. I should be suspicious of what I want. I think if we truly want to bring an end to suffering, not just emotional and psychological suffering, but indeed the suffering in our world, craving truly does need to be understood and released. And it really is a radical invitation to change the shape of our heart and mind and our lives. And it's an invitation to freedom. It's an invitation to find inwardly an inner sufficiency, the dignity we long long for. I think it's really important to be incredibly honest and, and about craving in our lives and to really know and to really feel its landscape, to feel its agitation and painfulness, the large and the small cravings that beset us and drive us. Because every moment when we are pursuing craving, in a way we are abandoning our own hearts, our own heart's capacity for contentment and sufficiency. I think it's really only when we really understand the painfulness of craving itself that we might find the willingness to step out of its discontent. There's a very close feedback loop in craving. Believing and feeling a sense of insufficiency, not enough in the moment or in ourselves, we start searching the world for the things, the people, the experiences that we think might answer that sense of lack. We're not always unsuccessful. We have momentary successes, but they're only momentary. And then once more we find that awareness of a growing disquiet, the hunger, arising once more. And we go and search again for answers. It's a kind of more policy, more sense impressions, more sights, more food, more excitement, more praise. And every time we're in that search for more, what does it do? It, it just simply reinforces the sense of lack. I want to look a little bit at the cravings that keep us agitated. First of all, there is the craving for sensual pleasure, whether it's pleasant sights, sounds, touch, taste, experience, thoughts. It's a long list. We become hungry in that craving. Even, actually, I might suggest the sense of I, sense of self, is actually an appetite. It's actually an appetite, always on the prowl for something to make me feel enough. So we prowl the world like, like looking for a mirage in the desert, believing, and this is a big piece of this craving, we believe that we can only be happy in the midst of pleasant experience. And that if there is unpleasant experience, it automatically means that we will be unhappy. It's a big one. 
we start to believe, of course, part of this craving for central pleasure is that there's nothing wrong with pleasure, by the way. We've already mentioned this, you know. It's this craving for a sensual pleasure based on insufficiency. Believing that the source of joy does really lie somewhere outside of ourselves. And so we tie our happiness and our unhappiness to what we can get and what we can get rid of. (coughs) Now what the Buddha discovered and what countless yoginis through time have discovered is that when we can find the willingness to step out of the fire of craving and discontent, when we can find the willingness to be still, to calm our minds and bodies, and to cultivate an inner inner collectedness, we might have the possibility of discovering in our own hearts and minds an inwardly generated profound joy and happiness and serenity, greater, greater and vaster than any happiness born of craving. We might have the possibility of discovering a freedom and liberation of heart and mind and a happiness and joy that's not tied to getting and getting rid of anything. There is so much in the world and in ourselves, but so much in the world that is delightful and lovely. And we taste that so many moments in being here. But what we really discover through this practice is we nurture our capacity to be delighted. You know, because we could be surrounded by the delightful and lovely. But if we have not nurtured that capacity inwardly to be delighted, nothing really touches us. It's really why, it's really why so much emphasis is given in this teaching to, to the practice of sitting and walking, not just because we like people to follow schedules or anything like that. But because actually this practice of sitting and walking is a practice of peace, it's a practice of spaciousness, it's a practice of contentment, it's a practice of discovering an inner sufficiency. Tasting the happiness of our own hearts is indeed a taste of freedom. And this second craving, the second form of tanha, um, which is a big one actually, is the craving to become. This is a big one in our culture. You know, we face this pressure almost from the time we get out of diapers, you know. What are you going to be when you grow up, you know? After all, you just learned to breathe, you know, and start thinking about this. You know, this craving to become, the craving to be somebody, the craving to be somebody who is measured by what you can show, what you can present, what you have, what you own, what you have become, your identity, your status. Nothing wrong with these things, but this pressure. And, and I think, you know, this goes into so many domains, including this domain. You know, and I think culturally we call this craving to become self-improvement. Now, self-improvement programs are not the same as wholesome and skillful longings for respect and creativity and, and dignity to realize everything that is possible for us to realize and to embody that in our lives. This is wonderful. This is kusala. The craving to become is something different. It is about the craving to become lovable, the craving to become acceptable, the craving to become worthy, 
resting upon and driven by the belief that we are actually not enough, not good enough, not worthy enough, not lovable enough. And it's, so we pursue identity, status, experience to tell us that we are worthy. But this is an ongoing abandonment, actually, of the acceptance and compassion, sufficiency of our own hearts. So a lot of ways this plays out. And in this belief in, in this belief in insufficiency, you know, praise and approval becomes very important to us. And when praise and approval becomes very important to us, we start to mold ourselves to the expectations of others. We start to need to please. It's a kind of toxic craving, I think. It, it's a... Uh, not a bowing, but as one of my friends calls it, there's a big difference between bowing and scraping. <laughs> what is the effect of that craving? Does it really ennoble our lives, this craving to become, or does it diminish it? Because you see that if we really seek and pursue praise and approval and that being delivered to us from the outside, then you know what? We're going to just as much hoard blame. We're just as much going to hoard judgment, criticism, disapproval as also telling us something true about ourselves. Now, lost in that craving to become a sense of authenticity, I think, becomes increasingly elusive. I can think of hardly any other impulse than the craving to become that had been so detrimental to women's freedom. Mercy at the mercy of the need for approval, at the mercy of, of the need to be perfect, is, is to live in fear of failure and rejection. So what, how do we deal with this in practice? Because I think, you know, we see it here too. Um, we become increasingly sensitive, I think, sensitized to the voice of the inner critic and the inner judge. Is it actually learning to question this? You know, because that's so much tied up in this craving to become. You know, and is that voice of the inner critic, the inner judge, actually telling us something true about ourselves, or is it telling us the story of the craving to become and self-abandonment? It's an endless story of insufficiency that follows in the footsteps of craving. We begin in our practice to be sensitive, actually really sensitive to the story of me. And maybe we begin to see that in reality, we are not telling ourselves the story of insufficiency, but actually the telling or the belief in the story of insufficiency is moment to moment telling us who we are. You know, we have to look at this story of ourself, the story of me, and we see how, you know, we think, you know, how many times have you been told to let go of the story? Well, you can't. Because the story is telling you who you are. But it's not just this, our own story that is telling us who, are, who we are. I think through women's history, women have been told the story of who they are. It's not as if we are somehow exempt from those conditions. So we begin to question this and begin to really perhaps see that the story of I very often arises with the story of discontent and the story of craving, the story of insufficiency. Have you noticed, like in the moments when there's a greater sense of peace 
or calm and well-being. Have you noticed how the voice of me gets very quiet? And that, you know, in, in the moments of generosity and kindness and compassion, have you noticed that the voice of me gets very, very quiet? And yet when craving's on the move, you know, I need, I must have, I want, I like, I dislike, I have to get rid of. If you notice how the volume of me gets turned right up, and it's actually almost as if that story is actually telling me in that moment who I am. Learning to make our home a little more in stillness, in quietness, in wakefulness, I think it's not that the story of I doesn't arise, it arises, but there's the space to also let it follow its natural rhythm of passing. It's not so much that I get rid of the story, but somehow the conditions have been cultivated that allows the story to let go of itself. Selfing, craving, clinging, agitation, these are all kind of threads of the same cloth. And if we start to unravel any one of those threads, we unravel the whole of the cloth. And we begin to see that creativity and authenticity and inner authority, the qualities that ennoble our lives, they are not born of craving or a perfect self. They're not gained or attained. It's almost rediscovered through stepping out of the fires of agitation, the fires of the belief in insufficiency. The third kind of tanha, there's even more bad news, is, is this, uh, the craving for non-existence. Just as there's a craving to become, there's this third, very, sounds initially very strange, the craving for non-existence, the craving again that robs nobility from our lives. Now, this craving for non-existence, we kind of see it on a quite a moderate level in all the moments of resistance, the flickers of aversion, of pushing away, the wanting to divorce ourselves from what is. This is a craving for the non-existence of this experience because this experience that we dislike is in, through the eyes of confusion, We don't want to be the kind of person who's having that experience. We want to be the kind of person who's having this other experience. So the craving for non-existence is not only the pushing away of the experience that we find unpleasant or threatening, it simultaneously begins endeavoring to push away the sense of self, the sense of me who is having that experience, because that's not the me that I want to be. That's so important to see, this craving for non-existence. I don't want to be the kind of person who has, you know, difficult thoughts, difficult emotions, depression, anxiety, you know, uh, deflated meditation experiences to report in the interview group, you know. (laughs) I don't want to be the kind of person who's having that kind of experience, you know. I want to be the kind of person who's having this other kind of experience. So I push that away. That's the craving for non-existence. That's a kind of moderate level of it. The fear of discomfort, the fear of being overwhelmed, the fear of being annihilated that leads us to protect and defend, defend, to become agitated. 
sometimes this this craving for non-existence, I think, for some people in their lives, it leads to, you know, the seeking to become invisible, not seen as a kind of protection. Um, The fear of judgments or intolerance for even worse, sometimes this craving for non-existence finds its expression in the seeking for numbness so that we just don't feel the difficult. At its most extreme level, the craving for non-existence is suicide. That is at its most extreme level. What are we doing in our practice? Well, actually, you know, we're learning to be alive. We're learning to be upright in our own being. We're learning to nurture our heart's capacity for acceptance, kindness, compassion. We're seeking the end of suffering moment to moment. We're learning to find the courage to stand amidst the winds of the difficult without aversion, nurturing those seeds of equanimity. Embracing all things, including the difficult and the challenging. If we understand the causes of suffering, and tanha truly is said to be the cause of suffering. If we understand the causes of suffering, release ourselves from the grip of craving, you know what? We come to know the end of suffering. When the Buddha described the landscape of liberation, he described it as a complete freedom of heart and mind from the compulsions of craving. And he called this freedom the taste of the Dhamma, or an ennobled life. And in this practice, I think there is the encouragement for us to know for ourselves that taste of the Dhamma. It's not easy. It's not about rejecting or judging craving. That's just another form of craving. But to know its nature, to know its source, to know its arising, to know its passing, perhaps to alert ourselves inwardly to all those moments of hunger, of prowling, of compulsion, this sense of insufficiency arising, knowing that all that compulsion, all that prowling, all that sense of need is almost kind of like a reflex of the belief in insufficiency and lack, and to learn to be still in the waves It's not so much that we let go of craving, but it's almost as if craving lets go of itself if we don't follow its call. And every moment this happens, there's a taste of something else. There's a a taste of the freedom of being ungoverned. Ungoverned. That taste of an inner authenticity and authority and dignity. A taste of sufficiency. And it's almost like the little cravings and the big cravings, the little and the driving compulsions, the little and the great aversions. It's like they're all the arms and legs of one body. But it's also true that the small and the great moments of stillness, of calm, the small and the great moments of uprightness and spaciousness and kindness and compassion are also the arms and legs of one body. And that, I think, is really the body of sufficiency, the body of an ennobled life and heart. Take just a moment, quietly together.
Thank you.